Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today on Political Theory 101, we're going to return to a theme that has been a prominent theme for us over the years, which is civic education. Uh, What kind of civic education, if any, is necessary? And we're going to do it this time by looking at a period of Chinese political theory that we've not previously done. We're going to talk a little bit about Song Ming Confucianism. Uh, we're going we're to do a lot of Wang Yang Ming and a little bit of Zhu Zhi. So, Zhu Zhi uh, lived during the Song Dynasty. He was born in 1130 and died in 1200. Wang Yang Ming came from the Ming Dynasty. So, he was born in 1472 and died in 1529. Uh, Wang Yang Ming was a high-ranking Ming civil servant. So, he came up through the form of civic education that in China uh, was the dominant form given to all civil servants. And it was based on the teachings of Zhuzhi. So, what did Zhuzhi teach? Well, for Zhuzhi, all reality is Li and Qi. So, Li is translated into English as either principle or pattern. And I do think that the way you translate it to some degree affects how people understand it. If you say that Li is principle, it sounds a bit like, say, Plato's first principle or the Western idea of God uh, as a kind of first principle. If you translate it as pattern, then it sounds a little more, more like nature. It has a little bit more of an empiricist connotation. You might think about you know, going out and looking at things and trying to find patterns in, in the natural world, in objects. So, I do think that the way you translate it matters. And I think it's especially interesting that you can translate it both ways because that allows a great diversity of readings. So, that's Li. Qi is translated in lots of different ways. I'm going to use the word stuff for Qi. I'm going to use the word stuff because I think a lot of the other terms that get used have very specific connotations, but different connotations from one another. Stuff is a little bit more neutral and doesn't carry with it some of the biases that you might get from using some of the other terms. So, when the stuff, the chi, is clear, the principle underlying it is manifest or the pattern, right? More sophisticated stuff is clearer than less sophisticated stuff. So, for instance, plants have clearer chi than rocks, and humans have the clearest chi of all beings. However, different humans have different levels of clarity in their chi. The humans with the clearest chi display the virtues, and humans with more turbid chi, they don't. They'll display more vices. It's possible for a person's chi to become clearer or less clear over time. So, through ethical cultivation, you can clear up your chi, 
But if you become lax, lazy, if you develop bad habits, your chi can become more turbid. Because chi is never perfectly clear, knowledge of the external world is inconsistent and sporadic. And here, if you are going to translate Li as principle, you will feel a kind of platonic influence that I think comes in large part from the fact that Neo-Confucianism was influenced by Buddhism and Buddhism is influenced by Greco-Indian interaction. Uh, I, I definitely think that if you read Li as principle, then this idea that knowledge of the external world is inconsistent and sporadic is you know, principle not being fully uh, evident in Qi, what is, is stuff not being fully able to express consistently the principle. It just sounds to me like uh, very much like a lot of Platonism. However, uh, if you were to understand that as pattern, well, that would lead you to a, a kind of epistemology that is empiricist, but which contains something of this platonic level of remove. So, where you can study what uh, exists in empirical reality, you can study natural matter, but you're still not going to get a full sense of the pattern, right? So, this would be a, a very cautious form of empiricism if you take it in that more empiricist direction and read it as pattern. Uh, now, because knowledge of the external world is inconsistent and sporadic, people will be inconsistent and sporadic. So, even people who have relatively clear chi, their chi won't be clear all the time. They won't always get it right. They're going to make mistakes. They will sometimes display virtue in some situations and in other situations, they'll seem like awful people. So, you won't just have one person who is always virtuous, uh, always acting like uh, the sage. There will be this coming and going. And that might remind you a little bit of Plotinus and those moments with Plotinus where you get these insights, but they're fleeting and they go away. Right? Because all humans share the same principle, we all have Li, we are all potentially part of a harmonious, uh, a harmonious whole. Benevolence involves recognition that we have the same nature as others. Conversely, selfishness is the fundamental vice, right? We, are all, we all have the same principle animating us. So, even though it may seem as if we're different stuff because we have different bodies, this unity of principle allows us to see that we are fundamentally like each other and to therefore be benevolent to one another on that basis. As far as desire goes... For Zhuzhi, there is nothing inherently wrong with desire except insofar as our pursuit of desire leads us to disregard the well-being of others. So, we get a kind of moderate stance with regard to desire, similar to Plato or Aristotle, and not like, say, a Stoic position. So, what's the primary point of contention among the Neo-Confucians? Well, it's about how ethical cultivation works. For Zhuzhi, human chi is too turbid for people to consistently know it is virtuous and act accordingly. By studying the classics, and by the classics he means the ancient Confucian texts, we're able to approach the principle abstracted away from the situations that occlude it. 
But this will only get us so far as understanding the principle alone isn't enough to enable us to act virtuously in our own concrete situations, right? So if you contemplate Lee and you manage to get a hold of Lee, it will still be difficult to understand, you know, even if you're getting Lee in the abstract, what Lee means in the situation that you're in. So even if we really study Lee and we try to get a sense for it, it will only be inconsistently and imperfectly a guide to action because understanding Lee abstracted away from situations is in some ways an incomplete understanding of Lee. But if you understand it only rooted in situations, well, then you'll be caught in trying to imitate things that have worked in the past but won't work in your own context or setting. Right? So you see this, this difficult thing. The kind of civic education that Zhuzhi calls for is itself by his own theory, limited in its effect and in what it can do for you. Right? And this is very interesting to me in part because we've been reading a lot of classical texts. So, Zhuzhi thinks that reading you know, ancient texts is great and wonderful to do. But he does think that there's this limit to what you can get out of it. At some point, you've got to come back to the contemporary situation and go, well, how does this all apply? And does it all apply? Can you apply it? I try to do that on this show. I try to talk about applications. Zhuzhi's opponents, however, generally argued that virtue is easier to acquire than this. And some of them even argued that it's innate, requiring no cultivation or civic education at all. And this is the position that Wang Yangming chooses. He argues that nothing is outside the mind, and therefore, the principle, Li, must exist in the mind. And if Li exists in the mind, then the study of ethics is unnecessary because Li's already there. You already have it, right? In some ways, this is a move from what we might in Western thought call uh, an a posteriori account to an a priori account. But it's a little bit funny because, you know, Plato sometimes makes it out like our knowledge of the good is a priori. But Plato still thinks that uh, even though we might have some inherent ability to access the first principle, that that inherent ability will be inconsistent and is aided by civic education. Whereas Wang Yang Ming here seems to be arguing that civic education really does not get to the root of, of what's going on. That it really is something that we can get through intuition, through what uh, is sometimes translated into English as the heart mind, the heart mind, which just knows innately what the duties are, what is good and what is bad. Wang Yangming argues that there is a unity of knowing and acting. So for him, we cannot do something wrong if we know that it is wrong. We might believe we did something wrong knowing it was wrong. And we might genuinely and honestly profess that we knew it was wrong, but did it anyway. But even if we say that and we believe that it's true and we say it, it's not actually the case. If we really understood that it was wrong, we wouldn't have done it. So a person can claim using words that they know that they have made a mistake, but the action betrays that the words are not true. That doesn't mean that they're a liar, but the words are not true. In this way, Wang Yangming denies that we can be motivated to do things we believe to be wrong. And this question of how motivation relates to ethics is a key meta-ethical question. When we're talking about motivation and ethics, we're talking about uh, 
the same thing? Are we talking about two different things? Or are we talking about two heavily overlapping things? Wang Yangming makes this argument to deny that we need to know before we can act. If knowing and acting are one and the same, then it's not necessary to study ethics before we can act well. Knowledge is proven only through rightful action and not through mere words. So why does Wang Yangming go this route? Well, during the period, the Ming period, Students often learned to recite as dogmas the claims of Zhuzhi because that's what was taught in the Civil Service Academy. So when the students are learning, they're learning oftentimes for the purposes of getting a job in the civil service. And if you're learning for the purposes of getting a job, oftentimes you, know, you won't really be interested in all this Confucian stuff for its own sake. You just want to be able to memorize it in such a way that you can produce it on an exam, impress somebody and get ahead. So a lot of the people who are spouting this Confucian stuff were not really approaching Confucianism in the Confucian way with the kind of reverence that you'd need. So Wang Yangming wants to remind us that these students don't actually know anything about ethics. Their ability to recite quotes from the classical texts in no way proves that they actually know how to act well. Now, you might expect that Wang Yangming would argue that they need some further form of cultivation so that this education you know, actually works or actually comes off, you know, that the education is insufficient and needs to be better. But that's not what happens. Instead, Wang Yangming argues that cultivation is extraneous and kind of unnecessary. Zhu Zhi, on the other hand, argued that knowledge could only connect to action through sincerity. So the sincere person does not engage in self-deception, does not deceive themselves into thinking that they are doing right by acting selfishly when they know that they are doing wrong. In this way, Zhuzhi has what we might call a theory of ideology, a theory of how we persuade ourselves that others are not like us so that we can ignore what we owe to them, a way of convincing ourselves that we are individuals, that we are subjects and not uh, part of a unified whole. But for Wang Yangming, if we see a child falling into a well, we cannot help but feel compassion for the child, regardless of our level of cultivation or our degree of self-deception. He argues the same also applies to animals in distress and even to plants and to rocks. If we see a mineral you know, being kicked around and ill-treated or treated in a disrespectful way, we have an impulse to go, oh, that's, that's a shame. Oh, that poor rock that's being, you know, kicked around by those kids. So, so irreverent of them to be, you know, kicking rocks around. So, he argues that selfish desires block these feelings of compassion from manifesting as action. But this blocking happens to everyone, regardless of education level, regardless of how much time you might spend reading classical texts. And that reading classical texts doesn't stop this from happening. Right? Desires obstruct forms of ethical knowledge that for Wang Yangming are both universal and a priori. So we all have desires. The desires all sometimes get in the way of us doing the right thing. Reading the classical texts is not going to get you out from under desire. Well, then the question is, well, what does? And how do you know the difference between what it is that you desire and what it is that you think is right in the heart mind? 
You know, how do we know that what you're having is really a, a moral intuition versus a selfish desire? How do we distinguish those things on this theory, given that they both are meant to come from within? Right. And in a lot of, say, contemporary liberal ethics, we, we talk about existentialism, we talk about authenticity, be true to yourself. But then there's this question of, well, you know, how do you know the difference between doing what you really think is right or feel is right and doing whatever it is that you feel like doing without a care in the world for what is right? Uh, can't we easily rationalize the latter such that we think that it's the former? And so a lot of the critics of Wang Yangming argue that his position results in a kind of subjectivism, which ultimately undermines the capacity of the principle to guide us. So it ultimately undermines our ability to connect with Lee. Conversely, you know, the critique that Wang Yangming makes, and it's a very valuable and I think important critique, is that sitting around reading the classics is not an automatic route to becoming a better person, does not automatically cause you to, in real life, take better decisions. I mean, perhaps you know, some people listening may have heard of the story that appeared recently. I think it was in The New Yorker about the professor at University of Chicago who uh, cheated on her uh, spouse with a graduate student and then moved the graduate student into the house with her and uh, has kind of rationalized all of it through philosophy. This is someone who teaches you know, Aristotle and, and Greek classical texts and has come up with this way of living, which is seems to be you know not very pleasant for the people around her, but is, is nonetheless using philosophical argumentation to defend uh, what she's doing. I am not meaning here to wade into the substantive issue, but I do think you know this is the kind of case where people might make a sort of Wang Yang Ming argument that see you know what is the value of reading Aristotle if you can do that your whole life and then make such a mess out of your personal life. So I want to kind of close my introduction with a, a quote that I think uh, helps to get at some of Wang Yang Ming's motivations for having this view that civic education doesn't work. And he says, you need to understand the basic purpose of my doctrine. In their learning, people of today separate knowledge and action into two different things. Therefore, when a thought is aroused, although it is evil, they do not stop it because it has not been translated into action. I advocate the unity of knowledge and action precisely because I want people to understand that when a thought is aroused, it is already action. If there is anything evil when the thought is aroused, one must overcome the evil thought. One must go to the root and go to the bottom and not allow that evil thought to lie latent in his mind. This is the basic purpose of my doctrine. So, can we tell evil thoughts from not evil thoughts without uh, some further kind of education? I, I think that is the conundrum that this invites. Uh, but I want to hear from Alex. Alex, of course, suggested that we do Wang Yang Ming, and I'm interested in what he found interesting about him. So, Alex, what did you get out of it? Mostly not a lot from the text, but a lot of it was about, like you're saying, not making a mess of personal life. And yeah, if you, if you set the correct motivation in that, then when you do come to do reading and you have more time, It'll come through and it'll sound better because you've done the work outside <laughs> and you're not just focused on, okay, let's get another book out or another essay or 
or anything else. I don't know. So. Yeah, I I think we can find in Confucius and in Plato this idea that well, you have to come to the education with the right purpose or the right intention, and that's got to be for its own sake to you know, understand what's good or what's true. If you're doing it instrumentally, you're not going to get the same thing out of it. So the the position in a lot of that work is that well, civic education has value, but it only has value if it's not. Uh, heavily instrumentalized or maybe not that it only has value if it's not heavily instrumentalized but that it has much more value if it's not heavily instrumentalized the difficult thing is if you want widespread access to this kind of education you would need to motivate people to do it people who haven't done it yet and so might not understand what is important about it. And the way that this problem tends to get solved in the history of thought is tying this form of education to advancement in the professions to say, well, you can be a civil servant, but you have to spend some time with Confucius. And of course, what that does is it attracts a lot of people to Confucianism who are not there for the reasons that you want them to be there. And your hope is that by exposure to this, some number of them will actually get it and start to care about it. Um, But most of them won't. Most of them are doing it instrumentally for the career. And the thing about, say, the the Zhuzhi education is it produced Wang Yang Ming. It also produced the people that Wang Yang Ming couldn't stand, who were just mouthing it off to get ahead. And so that's the trouble. If you do make it widespread, the, to, to get people who don't understand the value to do it, to give it a chance, you have to induce them to do it. And when you're inducing them to do it, that increases the chance that they're going to have a superficial engagement with it. But you kind of have to induce them to do it. Even if you have the purest motivation, you want to help everybody. Eventually, that's going to force you because then you'll realize that even when you're saying to yourself, okay, I'm just going to speak what is helpful, you're still doing it without realizing that that's another wrong kind of, I don't know, view. Then once you do induce them to do it, then you end up with a bunch of people who make the whole thing look bad, right? So once you have a bunch of these civil servants who know how to sound like Confucians, but don't know how to act like Confucians, these people (laughs) make Confucianism look bad, and then that leads to an abandonment of the original theory, right? So if you have, say, you're teaching a form of, of Platonism or what have you, that uh, people are learning as a dogma. Eventually, the fact that they're learning it as a dogma causes them to represent the thing so badly that the society moves away from it. Eventually, you get people who were themselves raised by and produced by that education who reject it because they see that it has not had that kind of positive effect on very large numbers of people. And then they move you away from that form of education and what they replace it with may or may not work better. Uh, And I'm not sure that it does work better. I'm not convinced that you can just appeal to intuition because I do think that the the point that defenders of of Zhuzhi make that it then becomes very difficult to tell the difference between what's your conscious, what's, what's your intuition and what do you just want to do anyway? I think that is a problem that afflicts a lot of contemporary ethics, and I can see how that would be a problem for Wang Yang Ming's view. Is that because you have to 
go through a lot of obstacles in order to see what is blocking intuition because it involves discomfort. Well, and that's why I, people, yeah, sorry, Confucians it, who it, want to, yeah. It's it's just so easy to think that whatever it is that you want to do is your intuition. Like if you say to someone, <laughs> listen to your gut, yeah. are you saying listen to your conscious uh, conscience or are you saying to just do whatever it is that you want to do? And the thing is, even if you do make it clear in words that you think those are two different things, in point of fact, I think often people end up taking them to be the same thing. Once people think that ethics comes from their, their own, you know, gut feelings, then there is this powerful tendency to rationalize whatever it is that you want as a gut feeling that is, is ethical. Is that why, like, when you're making a gut feeling, it, it has to, at the beginning and the end, still feel like gut feeling, but in between, there has to be some kind of test by the intellect? Which allows you to see, oh, does that feeling hold up in this situation, in this situation? Or is it just when I think this that I feel that? Yeah. Well, of course, if there's going to be a, 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 some form of intellectual test, then you would need some level of training, which kind of drags you back in the direction of needing civic education. And the Wang Yang Ming thing is meant to work without that kind of civic education. Although Wang Yang Ming did write a book... I think maybe he felt that in his period, civic education was so universally the view that was dominant that he couldn't possibly be the cause of, of the elimination of civic education, but that he could maybe be added to it in a way that would complicate it usefully. I think someone who's exposed to both Zhi Zhi, uh, Zhi excuse me, and Wang Yangming would benefit from being exposed to both of those perspectives. But if we actually got rid of the civic education, I'm not sure that would work from this point of view. When you say this point of view, is it like... I mean, Confucianism a- as opposed to, say, you know, the legalism of Shang Yang from last time. Which takes for granted that people have an innate kind of um, spark or whatever goodness. So... Well, in, in his case, he just he just thinks that there's no possibility of making people better anyway. So why are you trying to do that? Just make a, a state that deals with the fact that people are not very good. And the interesting thing about Zhuzhi's position is that Zhuzhi recognizes that there's going to be all sorts of trouble in terms of getting people to behave better. It's not like he has an extremely optimistic view about what's possible. And so in some ways, you could say it's interesting. So Zhu Zhi thinks that civic education is really important. On the one side of Zhu Zhi, you have Yang Shang, who thinks um, that people are terrible and therefore there's no point in trying to educate them into into a better uh, position. Uh, On the other side, you've got Wang Yang Ming, who thinks that people are good enough that... uh, they can do this on their own without the benefit of a lot of civic education. I Not to say that Wang Yangming doesn't think people fall short. He clearly does think they fall short, but he thinks this falling short happens regardless of whether you have civic education or don't. So we have kind of two critiques of civic education here in, in Chinese political thought, which sit on kind of opposite sides of Zhu Zhi. And Zhu Zhi is more kind of 
institutionalized Confucianism. And I say institutionalized Confucianism because this is the form of Confucianism that's taught in the schools to aspirants, uh, and which to a large degree still affects how institutionalism is, uh, excuse me, how Confucianism is taught and interpreted by Chinese institutions. When you talk about um, how it, how it's taught, I think about pragmatism, because that's like a buzzword that you associate with Confucianism. And then mm. I think about the tension that that, that has with uh, basically being friendly to people or supporting them in a difficult time and how, yeah, it doesn't always, one doesn't work with the other maybe. Yet it's supposed to be a kind of religious or moral doctrine, so it should. Or just maybe it doesn't support the friendliness as much as other traditions. I don't know. Well, I think it does It does support friendliness. What it does is the benevolence, it has to be, because of the pragmatism, it has to be integrated into a system of duties and roles. Right, Because the emphasis is not just on what's the right thing to do in an abstract situation, but what's the right thing to do in a social context. And Confucianism is always pulling toward, well, what about the social context? Right, So that's, that's why even in Ji's uh, view, you have to not just abstract away and get the principle outside of the situation. You then have to come back to the situation with the principle. And that's why the teaching of the classics is necessary, but not always sufficient. Because when you come back to the situation, you may make mistakes in how you apply the lessons of the classical texts. And that's, that's the difficulty. Uh, other doctrines that are more focused on abstract ethics are less attentive to context. And so because they're less attentive to context, they can give kind of hard rules that are meant to apply in all situations. So I think the pragmatism of Confucianism causes it to be very focused on, well, how is the principle realized in the stuff, in the situation that you're in? Uh, so the benevolence is mediated by that constant focus on, well, what does the stuff allow? So there is a universality in it insofar as a lot of Confucians think there's one Li, you know, one principle, and a lot of Confucians think that there is, uh, you know, realizing that we're all one and that we all have, uh, are similar fundamentally to each other is very important. You know, that's benevolence for, for Zhu Xi. At the same time, there is an awareness of a plurality of contexts, and the plurality of contexts prevents the kind of big universal ethical rules that you might get in, say, a Western tradition that's more influenced by Stoicism. It's like uh, two extremes of just watering something down, so spreading friendship across many people and not really being a, <laughs> a true friend to any one person versus the opposite, which is just remove yourself from reality and find one thing that you can believe in and then always stick to it until you die. <laughs> Well, you might be a true friend to to one person. I think a Confucian can be a, a true friend to somebody. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's it's just going to be an awareness that that true friendship has to be, uh, you know, that's one of the roles that you have among many. And you can't, 
become so focused on uh, one particular person that, that causes you to fail in your duties to others. So there's an awareness on the part of of the Confucian that there's a set of overlapping, you know, uh, there's a web of duties that a person has and these different roles that they have in the in their life. And if you over-focus on one and neglect the others, that's not okay. So if you have someone who has become, who has tried to play a larger role than really is possible consistent with the other roles that the person has in your life, you know, then you have to get some level of distance from that person. Mm-hmm. Right? The benevolence does not mean that you specifically favor one individual who wants your friendship or your attention to the, uh, at the expense of everybody else. Right? Benevolence means recognizing not just that your friend is like you, but lots of people are like you. And if those people are in specific kinds of relationships to you, you then gain duties for taking care of those people and looking out for those people. So there is a kind of relational component to Confucianism because of this contextual mediation. So on the one hand, there's a kind of universal benevolence, but on the other hand, it's always mediated through context. And so what it actually cashes out in, in terms of the duties that you have will depend very much on the situation that you're in. Uh, And that's, One of the strengths, I think, of Confucianism is that it is able to speak of a sense in which we are one, but also it's able to account for difference, for the fact that uh, situations evolve, that you don't just have one set of rules that you can apply dogmatically across time and across context. Uh, And that's very clear in Zhuzhi's interpretation of Confucianism, I think. Uh, and it's something that I think a lot of people who just have a kind of stereotype of Confucianism in their head based on you know, whatever it is that they think modern China is or whatever it is that they thought ancient China was, um, a lot of people miss that part. There is a profound emphasis on adapting to context in this. It's hard. It's Yeah, I'm sure it will offend a lot because I don't really understand how face works in Asia so much. Because I'm I'm basically taught to disagree with my superiors, whereas a lot of people, I guess, who you know have to live under face, they it's the opposite. So well, you know, if we're thinking about you know face, I, I wouldn't say that it's that you can't disagree. It's that you have to do it in such a way that face is respected. But that that usually means no sign of disrespect, even mental. Like not even well, physical. If you see how, for instance, Wang Yangming talks about Zhu Zhi, I think Wang Yangming, when he does explicitly discuss Zhu Zhi, shows how you can disagree in this tradition in a way which respects face. Okay. You know, to the point of saying, you know, I really, really searched myself to think, you know, am I being uh, arrogant in disagreeing with master, uh, w- with the master? Am I... Uh, not respecting, you know, the, the great lengths that ma- the master went to and the wisdom that the master holds. You know, and I, I worked very hard to purge myself of any kind of hubris. I, I nonetheless find that I cannot agree with the master. Uh, you know, I, I think there might be something wrong with me because I can't agree. Nonetheless, because I don't agree, I, I have to say what I think is true. 
And I don't know if the master were here, would he maybe agree with me if he were here? Would would uh, maybe he would be able to persuade me otherwise if he were here and I could talk to him? You know, so there's this constant emphasis that you think the person is is genuinely really a clever person. You don't demean their intelligence. You don't demean their ability to read the text. You don't demean their virtue. You are constantly recognizing that they are a master, that the treatment of them as a master is 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 something that is due to them, that they earned, that they are owed. And the fact that you have a different view in no way diminishes the position that they have. Right. So just because Wang Yangming doesn't agree with Zhu Zhi doesn't mean that Zhu Zhi doesn't deserve a position as a major canon figure in Confucianism. It doesn't mean that he's not a wise person, an intelligent person, a capable person. And so it's important to qualify the disagreement with all of these. This in no way negatively reflects upon the person with whom I disagree. If anything, it negatively reflects upon me for disagreeing with one who is known to be wise. And I would never want to suggest that that one is not wise. Uh, that is, I think, what's going on there. So there is still possibility of disagreement, but it comes with this recognition. And I think in some ways we could learn a little bit from this. There are a lot of political theorists that we may not agree with for all sorts of reasons. And there are political theorists that we may think have gotten things badly wrong. But if we approach political theorists with, hey, you know, these people were smart people who were trying to do their best to understand what was going on. They are part of the universe. They're expressing perspectives on the universe that come out of the universe itself, right? Uh, everything that everybody says comes out of this universe that we're all living in. So uh, everybody is, is expressing a perspective that comes out of it. And the people who have gone to great lengths to be trained in how to think about these things and who have worked very hard for very long times at these questions and thought about them for a long time are worthy of a level of respect, I think, even in cases where they get things wrong. And we can disagree with them in a way which you know, allows them to save face and acknowledge this face. Uh, if, however, you start to view face in such a way that it precludes disagreement and it makes it so that you can't even articulate what you think or it prevents you from even thinking things that are out of accordance with what the master thought in the first place, you know, at that point, it becomes a straitjacket and it becomes dogmatic and it becomes limiting. But like a lot of concepts, face can be taken in that kind of dogmatic and limiting way or it can be taken in this other way, which just, you know, asks you to, if you're going to disagree with someone who is widely regarded uh, and who has you know, done a lot of work on something that you're writing about or thinking about, you know, particularly if you're a young person who hasn't been at this for very long, you might make a point to, to treat the person with a level of respect, you know, even insofar as you think that they may have gotten a lot of things wrong. And often if you do that, the humility it invites people to take what you have to say a little bit more seriously because you're making a point to go, look, I wasn't out to make a name for myself and disagree with this guy. I wasn't out to try to embarrass an elder or to embarrass someone who has been thought to be wise by many people for many years. That's not my goal here. I really tried to find a way to agree with this person and just couldn't. Is, is, Does that help? Yeah, yeah. Is is the humility maybe going to cost you though? Because uh, it's basically power to control how people see you. 
And then it's obviously that's going to have a cost because if you're, if like, if understanding can unlock anything, then it's almost like you have to take on any cost to, which is, yeah, you have to take on the biggest cost to, to get that power. That makes sense. So you end up basically always limiting yourself with things like fear or, well, what does the other think and stuff like that in order to arrive at the correct uh, understanding. Well, I do think that there is certainly a significant tradition of people finding this, these kinds of Confucian norms to be a straitjacket, to be too limiting and to be something that they can't comfortably move in. And for those people, it then becomes necessary to exit Confucianism and to try a different tradition. Uh, And I I don't think that I'm enough of a syncretic and heterodox thinker that I don't think that moving into other traditions necessarily would lead you somewhere bad. I think a lot of traditions do ultimately lead to a lot of the same kinds of claims. For certain kinds of people, you know, that that uh, it's not going to be possible to interpret Confucianism in such a way that it allows you to actually be a good person. And if you're finding that a particular intellectual tradition isn't working for you, you know, there are I, I here's an area where I do agree with Gandhi. I do think there are many paths. And if one path doesn't work for you, you can try a different path. Hmm. Uh, but I, I do think that part of the reason that Confucianism doesn't work for some people is that Confucianism is sometimes read too narrowly as a particular set of rules or rituals that you have to follow to the letter or as you know, a, a, a system of respect that prevents the possibility of disagreement or prevents the possibility of challenging inherited truth. Uh, and of course, if that is the way that Confucianism is being treated where you are, then you can't be part of it because that version of Confucianism would be a straitjacket. And every tradition has the possibility of ossifying into dogma. Every tradition can produce ossified dogmatic versions of itself to the point where, you know, I don't think, for instance, that Zhuzhi was a dogmatist, but certainly when Zhuzhi's teaching was put into the schools and made part of the civil service exam, it could produce dogmatic thinkers. Not because there was anything, I think, inherently wrong with Zhuzhi's teaching that that made it inexorably dogmatist, but because almost any tradition can be made into a dogma if it becomes what you have to learn or what you have to participate in to be part of society. If it's the only way that you can get a job in the civil service is to act like you agree with Zhuzhi, you're going to get people who don't really understand Zhuzhi, but know how to parrot it in such a way that they can get ahead. Uh, The thing is that happens with almost any doctrine. And you could easily, you could see it happening in a reverse direction with Wang Yang Ming's. If it actually was the case that people just folded up the civic education and said, well, why bother with the classics? We all know uh, in our heart minds, what is the right thing to do? I think that that would have its own set of dogmatic implications. And I think to some degree in modernity, we see some of the consequences of thinking that we just kind of know on an intuitive level what to do and we don't really need to think about it. And insofar as we do need to think about it, it's only in these highly abstract thought experiment situations. It's not something that comes into daily life. I think there are issues with uh, 
proceeding from intuitions to the degree that a lot of modern uh, ethicists do. Um, but at the same time, Wang Yang Ming's view is a useful corrective in a context where there's a lot of dogmatism and people just spouting without thinking about you know, a particular view. To make it more concrete, would they have to say, when you're in any kind of yeah, interaction, am I either giving or basically taking from them? And that's not something that you can abstract away because you can see the result there and then. So it is intuitive. So. Well, I think sometimes it's intuitive. Sometimes we're able to to figure out pretty quickly and easily whether we're in a relationship of giving or taking or in a reciprocal relationship where there's both. But I do think sometimes people do become confused about it. Oftentimes, you'll see people in relationships argue with each other and claim, you know, each will claim that they're doing all the work or <laughs> doing all the heavy lifting. Um you know, marriage counselors, I'm sure, have all sorts of trouble with people coming in, each of which only sees what they do and fails to see what the other contributes. Uh, I'm not sure that it is always the case that, that we have an intuitive grasp of these things. Now, maybe it's the case that we hide some of what we do know from ourselves. Yep. Is that just because our desires are interfering or is that because there is a kind of insincerity that is, is acting as a block? Uh, or is it, you know, more fundamentally, you know, it's just really hard to understand some of this stuff and how it applies. Picking up on what you said about the desire might be a block that seems less confused, but still possibly Confucian, more Buddhist, because it's like, yeah, it's just a poison. Basically, you can't, you, you can't avoid it if it's there. So it's going to corrupt anything. Well, but the Confucians do make a point that desire is not bad in and of itself, but only insofar as it is this block and only in cases where it is this block. Uh, whereas Buddhists will have a position that is more critical in a, in a more general sense of desire than the Confucians do. I guess they both have skillfulness, which is like, in a way, you need it to be there so that you can learn how to, you know, see how it's mixed in with or how it's got multiple motivations at once so like some of it's yeah. well-being some of it's just you you i mean the ultimate objective of buddhism and confucianism is a little different insofar as the buddhist is trying to achieve tranquility so that they can stop being alive whereas <laughs> the confucian is interested in the management of life opposite and is committed to life creation versus destruction but they're both negative theology, maybe. So they're both destructive. Well, they both involve apophatic elements. I, you know, that's the thing. Just because you are interested in constructing a society doesn't mean you're not interested in integrating apophatic aspects to your, your theology or your metaphysics. Okay. It's possible to have a kind of apophatic approach that is still constructive from a social standpoint. Mm. And you can even argue, you know, I think one of the great arguments that came out of our, our uh, week when we did the Artha Shrastra was this idea that the ascetics play a role in contributing to the maintenance of householder society by providing this release valve, right? Mm -hmm. In many wow. ways, Zen Buddhism is this place that you can go if Confucianism doesn't work for you. And in that way, it strengthens Confucianism by providing this other path 
so that people who are dissatisfied within the Confucian framework and can't find a way to make it work for them don't become political dissidents. They instead move into a kind of withdrawal from life ethos. Did you say- That's not to say that Buddhism can't be political, by the way, just that this is how it, I think, has often functioned in Chinese history. Hmm. I, I'm not swearing off potentiality there for other kinds of things to develop or change. Did you see the thing about when he was younger, he looked at the bamboo shoots and then he moved tradition because he couldn't find the principle of things by looking at the external. Oh yes. This is a great story. So Yang Ming, he, yeah, he tried to learn about pattern. So he understood Lee, I think, more as pattern. So he tried to understand Lee by looking at you know physical bamboo shoots and trying to get insight into the nature of bamboo shoots or perhaps reality as a whole by looking in at lots of bamboo shoots and studying them for very long periods of time. So you might think of, say, meditation as a kind of, of sitting with the mind for long periods of time trying to have insights. He meditated with the bamboo shoots in the sense that he tried to learn something about reality from studying bamboo shoots. And he did this for many, 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 many hours and many, many days. He and a friend both tried it. And they found that they weren't getting anything from it except a headache. And so this caused him to go, well, it can't be that we get knowledge from studying patterns. Uh, it's got to be something that is innate. Uh, so it was this reading, I think, of Zhu Ji affected to some degree the position that he came up with. I'm coming, you know, I come at the Confucian tradition with more of a background in uh, ancient Greek political theory. So when I read Lee, I think about Plato and I think about the first principle rather than pattern. Uh, I can certainly see how if you took it in a pattern direction, you would have this feeling about it. But he got sick from doing that, which yeah. means that maybe he was switching back and forth between pattern and principle. Like he was getting glimpses of, oh, if I keep dwelling on this, it's going to make me sick. A bit like, yeah, if I try and... Well, it's hard to know what, what we mean, what he means by sick. When he says that he got sick... It's difficult for us to know what was going on in his mind there. I mean, it might be possible that him getting sick was useful in some way. But the thing is, he didn't think it was. He felt that he was just getting sick and that it wasn't accomplishing anything. He doesn't frame it as I was having these uncomfortable insights that I ran away from. He frames it as I was getting nowhere except I was get getting a headache. I was, you know, my stomach was was ill because I wasn't taking care of myself. And I mean, really, if you think about how are you supposed to study? Surely it's not that you're just supposed to look at bamboo shoots. Surely you're supposed to take good enough care of the body that when you engage in these forms of, of contemplation, you have some real possibility of having insight. If you ignore the needs of the body completely, that's not what uh, Confucianists or Platonists typically argue for. The body's desires have to be taken care of well enough that you're able to have the insights. You know, in the you know, allegory of the chariot, you have to take care of the horses so that the horses will fly you up in the heavens and you get a glimpse of the truth. So I don't think it can be you know, really that that was what 
these theorists advocated that he do. But I think the story has rhetorical value. It's a story that has been told throughout the ages. And I think it has uh, a powerful, it is a powerful critique of a certain kind of empiricist fetish where you think just by looking at objects, you're going to get somewhere. Uh, and I think it has some value as a, as a way of, of critiquing that. But I don't think it necessarily critiques the views of uh, Zhuzhi in the way that uh, Yang Ming thinks it does. I can't say much about how it critiques the views, but it does seem valuable because it makes him sick. It's like a shamanic sickness. You think he got something out of the sickness that he wasn't properly acknowledging? I think. I think he. He. Yeah. It's like. It's like a. It's something that has to come because you're basically taking on other people's shit. That's going to make you sick. If you expand your mind, then you're basically enduring their perspective, which is going to hurt you. Hmm. So, so it's like he didn't maybe I don't know appreciate that. That's a. Oh, I'm sure he did, but it didn't come across like. As See, here's an opportunity for you to practice the uh, the Confucian face saving technique. How can you? How can you imagine that you are trying to help the master save face? How would you put it in such a way that he could save face? Yeah, I'm trying. Yeah, I'm trying. <laughs> I, I would, uh, we could really use this right now, I think, in, say, the contemporary United States. We could all use a heavy dose of a little bit of, of face-saving Confucianism. We're not really interacting with other people in a way that allows them to save face. It's a problem in our public discourse. We are not interested in helping other people save face. If anything, we're interested in face assassination. That's <laughs> because we don't live so close to each other, maybe. Like there's more space, so you can kind of talk badly and then go home and not have to worry about seeing them again. Well, it's part of what allows you know, real disagreement is that the disagreement is not at the expense of face. You know, sometimes people oh. go, oh, the face-saving thing, it stifles disagreement. I think you can have disagreement uh, in a more robust kind of way if it comes alongside this face-saving. Because if you do the face-saving, then the disagreement is not a personal attack. And it's very clear that you're not trying to threaten the person or the person's institutional position or their position within society. And so that frees you up to just have a disagreement. We're not able to distinguish between disagreeing with a view and attacking a person. So we're not able to have this kind of conversation. Uh, that's, I think, some of the value in, in the face-saving that we don't really get with the way that we like to do things. So it distances you on that first level, but on the second level, people will just say, oh, you're just using the convention, the face, to say things that you wouldn't be able to say otherwise. You're just, yeah, the motivation's incorrect. So... I, don't know. I mean, that might always be true. It might be true that you are acknowledging face for the purposes of not really acknowledging it. It can be done in a kind of, uh, and I'm sure there are, are points in Chinese history where you'll find cases of this, where someone superficially acknowledges face while at the same time really going after the person. And there, there were cases in the Ming period where, I mean, even we're talking about how, you know, uh, Yang Ming, he actually did have some issues as a minister with enemies trying to drive him out or drive him into exile. People did try to do this with him. Uh, 
This face saving, I think, worked a little bit better when it was being deployed in reference to dead scholars, you know, dead masters, than it it did when you were talking about other people of the period whose reputations were less established. And it was really less clear where people sat, and there was still more scrapping about where people would fit into the hierarchy. You know, there, it is harder to deploy this consistently or in a way which really facilitates good discourse. Though that doesn't mean it's not worth trying to implement it all the same. Just because we can't realize something doesn't mean we don't get anywhere from trying to get it. Hmm. It's just, yeah, I guess the cost will be bigger because say you're talking about things, but say the emotion's incorrect, but you can't see it because you're focused on the idea. And then Well, and and this is a case where, again, we can have this confusion internally about what we really want versus what we think is our ethical intuition. We can think that we're acting from ethical intuition when we're really just doing what we want to do. We can confuse these things and conflate them. And this is, I think, the major weakness in Wang Yang Ming's account. This question of, well, how do you actually tell the difference between the heart mind and the desire? Uh, hmm. And if you if you just insist, well, of course you can because the heart mind allows you to tell the difference. You know, that's a little bit uh, that verges on the stoic position of well, we have the capacity to distinguish between true and false impressions. We just have the capacity to do it. Uh, and if you don't exercise that capacity, well, then something's gotten in the way for you. Uh, and I have a hard time buying that as a workable political view. At the same time, I do think it, it has value as a corrective to. A, a sort of dogma that has stifled people's ability to think independently. Uh, and I don't think that Zhu Ji was a dogmatist or was offering a dogma, but certainly institutionalization promotes that over time. And so you do need to go through these periods where ways of thinking that have become too entrenched have to be pushed out, even if they were great in the beginning. And maybe they're still great. Maybe if you you know, got them back into their original form, they would be great. But by the time they've they've been the mechanism through which you pick out people for jobs, subjecting a set of ideas to that instrumental use gradually erodes the quality of the ideas, the ability of them to be useful, the ability of them to help people think as they become less vital and less real in their use. It's one of the difficulties, any kind of philosophy or religion which is is used, the use of it tends to diminish its vitality and effectiveness, which leads to a need for the development of new paths or new approaches as the other paths become too well-traveled. It's almost like you build a road, right? Uh, The theorist builds a road and people travel on the road and gradually the road falls into disrepair because it's been beaten down by so many wheels and so many carts as so many people have used it, then there starts to be a need either to make a new road or to fix up the road that you have. And a lot of the time, it's very hard to fix up the road that you have. And and it might be easier to just try to making some new form of transport, some new way of getting there uh, rather than fixing up the road. Now I've come on to a metaphor that is a little bit too literally the problem with infrastructure in the United (laughs) States. Do we repair our crumbling interstate highways or do we build other kinds of infrastructure? We can't make up our minds. But now that I'm getting on the highways, I know I'm really well and clear of, of what we should be talking about. We've got a couple more minutes. Anything else you got before we wrap up? Not particularly, but 
Well, it would be to do with something harvesting, basically always harvesting a result of something. So, always harvesting the result of something. Yeah. So it's like you know, if you want to build a new motorway, if you're driving on it, you should be thinking, how can I improve this motorway and not just take from it? <laughs> maybe if everyone thought like that, then maybe wow, you know. But I don't think like that, so I'm not expecting them to. <laughs> well. Yeah, I think to to maybe I think that's a good point to maybe make it a little bit more uh, applicable when we're talking about civic education. We are talking about policies that will have results that we in very uh, are, are ourselves very unlikely to see. We're very unlikely to actually meet the people who receive any kind of civic education we create as adults in their crimes when they are embedded in the institutions and able to make decisions. So when we decide that the problem with our era is the kind of education that we have or the kind of people that we have, well, at that point, we're making a big bet on a future we're never going to have to deal with. And we're hoping that that future and that next generation will solve our problems. And it's a kind of forward thinking, but it's a kind of forward thinking, which it also involves a kind of giving up or surrendering in the present mm. and going, well, we just can't do anything with the kind of people we have. We need a better kind of person. So we need a better kind of civic education. Uh, I think by the time theorists start talking about civic education, things have already gone very badly wrong. And by the time you're talking about civic education, it's in part because you got stuff wrong in the past. You, you created the wrong kinds of people with your policy 50 years ago, and now you are unhappy with the kind of people you have, and you want to somehow get back to people that you think would be able to perform better. And this is why uh, Shang Yang you know, just f felt you shouldn't at all bother with any of this. You should just deal with the kind of people that are in front of you. And there is a powerful kind of practical argument for that. Uh, at the same time, you know, this is political theory 101, so it has a role to play in teaching people. <laughs> and so it has a role to play in you know, maybe that far future, I don't know. But it's, it's certainly not the same as political action that would be in the present that would be about trying to do something now. And I often wrestle with that. I often wrestle with, well, what does it mean to do something now? Um, mm. I like this show. I don't think it does something now. <laughs> And this is in part why I'm having us you know, uh, think about the civic education side of these theorists and think about, uh, does civic education do any good? And what good does it do? And if it does do good, when does it do good? And, and, uh, and in many ways, the, the thinking about civic education and the doing of the classics is a kind of retreat that I'm in as a theorist as I kind of try to figure out, well, what, what can be done? And I think periods of contemplation are valuable insofar as they allow you to get recentered after you've tried to do something and maybe it hasn't worked or you've you know, thought maybe something would work, but it's been proven not to work. Uh, but then you have to come back out of contemplation and you have to come back into action. And I, I value the contributions of Yang Ming and Shang Yang in part because they are a little action oriented and they are going, okay, well, you've had your fun with the classics, but you know, now what are you going to do with it? Uh, and sometimes I think, I think we need a little kick in the pants from, and it's interesting how by reading the classics, you can be told to stop reading the classics and go outside. 
exactly. that's some of the wisdom that's in the classics. And that's why you should read the classics and maybe not go outside right away. But eventually, eventually, I mean, that, that's that Aristotelian point about you know, switching between contemplation and action. There has to be a switching. And so sometimes you've been acting too long and you need to contemplate. And other times you've been contemplating too long and you need to act. And it's not just that one side of this is true. Both sides of it are true for different people in different situations because this is all context dependent. There, we've circled all the way back to where we started. So I consider this a, a, a successfully concluded episode of Political Theory 101. Oh, nice. Thank you guys so much for listening. and Have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.